Let us pray. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. The scripture for today is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Pew Bible, page 159. This entire commandment that I command you today, you must diligently observe, so that you may live and increase and go in and occupy the land that the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember the long way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness in order to humble you, testing you to know that what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. He humbled you by letting you hunger, then by feeding you with manna, which, with which neither you nor your ancestors were acquainted, in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The psalm is Psalm 133, Pew Bible, page 140, or 543, which is responsive reading. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord ordained his blessing, life forevermore. Our New Testament lesson for today comes from 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you are hungry, eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation about other things, 
I will give instructions when I come. Here ends the lesson. Our text comes from the early part of that passage, and these are probably the oldest words, the first words of Jesus recorded. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Let us pray. Eternal God, be with us as we ponder these words, these words that you have spoken to us. Interpret them that we might hear your voice this day. In your name we pray. Amen. Last weekend, Pope Benedict made a journey to his homeland. The 84-year-old Pope spent four days in Germany defending his understanding of the faith. Now, Germany's almost equally split between Protestant and Roman Catholic, and there's an increasing number of marriages between the members of these traditions. And so breaking down barriers to faith is a major issue for some Germans. And many were hoping that the Pope's visit would be a breakthrough. Some suggested that the Church allow Protestant spouses of Roman Catholics to take communion together when they attend Mass together. While the Pope did preside over a prayer service with a Protestant bishop in the Erfurt Monastery where Martin Luther had once lived, he dashed all hopes for sharing the Lord's Supper. For almost 500 years, the Eucharist has been a source of division between Christians, and the divisions over the Lord's Supper are not just found between Roman Catholics, and the rest of us. Protestants, for many years, fought, we fought among ourselves over the Lord's Supper. Remember, in the year 1529, in the midst of the Reformation, Philip of Hesse invited the leading reformers to his castle in Marburg to see if they could come to common ground. So Luther and other leaders from Germany and Switzerland and France came to the meeting. The discussions were open and frank. Much, many compromises were made. That is until the day they were to discuss the Lord's Supper. The story is told. Martin Luther walked into the room, pulled out a knife, carved into the tables in Latin the words, this is my body. Not a way to open the discussion on a positive note. Now the strange thing about all these controversies is that the differences primarily concern the mechanics of the Lord's Supper and not their meaning to us. Almost every Christian body, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Episcopal, Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, proclaim a belief that Christ is truly present in the sacrament. What they disagree about are the mechanics. And what I mean by mechanics is that the churches disagree over how Christ comes to be present, not really what the Lord's Supper means to the believer. The theories, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, and the rest are all attempts to explain how Christ comes to be present at the table and not what his presence means to us. It's helpful for us to realize that before all the focus on the mechanics of the Lord's Supper, 
it was a source of unity, not disagreement. It was at the heart of Christian unity and Christian life. And so this morning I'd like to focus on the mystery of the Eucharist and the life of Justin Martyr. Justin was born about 90, between a 90 and 105 AD, we're not really sure, in a town now called Nablus in Syrian Palestine. He came from a Romanized family and he was a Gentile. And as a young man, he was attracted to philosophy. He was a seeker of truth. And there were many different religions and schools of philosophy floating around the Roman Empire in those days, a really pluralistic age. And Justin was attracted to several of them. He dabbled with the Stoics, the Peripatetics, and others. And for a time, he became a determined Platonist. Then an old wise man led him to the truth of Christ. And Justin tells us, immediately a fire was kindled in my soul. And from then on, Justin saw himself as a teacher of Christianity. He made his way to Rome, continued to wear the robes of a philosopher, and he saw himself as a teacher of the true philosophy, the way of Jesus. Early in the reign of Emperor Marcus Aurelius, he fell afoul of the authorities because of his refusal to sacrifice to the Roman gods. And so Justin and six others were scourged and beheaded. That's the picture on the front of our bulletin, him being prepared to be beheaded. And thus, he got his name. His death makes him a witness. Martyr means witness. Now, Justin left many writings, and these helped to give us insight into the life of the Christian church in the second century. In his book, The First Apology, we find these words. On Sunday, we have a common assembly of all our members, whether they live in the city or the outlying districts. The recollections of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as there is time. When the reader has finished, the president of the assembly speaks to us, and he urges us to imitate the examples of virtue we've heard in the readings. Then we all stand up together and pray. On the conclusion of our prayer, bread and wine and water are brought forward. The president offers prayers and gives thanks to the best of his ability, and the people give assent, saying, Amen, and the Eucharist is distributed. Everyone present communicates, and the deacons take it to those who are absent. Second century, isn't it remarkable how the pattern of worship remains the same? The heart of worship is still Scripture, sermon, prayers, and the Eucharist. And the deacons there in the second century were already taking communion to shut-ins. It's clear that the Lord's Supper was, from the very beginning, at the heart of the Christian experience. And Justin believed that in taking the bread and cup, one came into the very presence of God. He wrote, We do not consume the Eucharistic bread and wine as if it were ordinary food and drink. For we have been taught that Jesus Christ, our Savior, became a man of flesh and blood by the power of God, so also the food that our flesh and blood assimilates for its nourishment become the flesh and blood of the incarnate Jesus by the power of his own words contained in the prayer of thanksgiving. 
Now, when we hear those words, we often make the mistake of reading them through the lenses of the last thousand years of division over how Christ becomes present. I do not believe that there are any early Christian writers that argued for a single understanding of how grace comes to us in the sacrament. That's an argument that starts a thousand years after Justin. What they took seriously was that God comes to us in the mystery of the Lord's Supper. Justin and the other early writers affirmed that somehow, in a way we cannot fully understand, Christ comes to us in the Eucharist. And from the first century to today, the Lord's Supper is at the heart of worship, for the risen Christ comes to us. Now, I've heard some people ask, what's this all about? The Lord's Supper can seem to be like a lot of mumbo-jumbo that has no relevance to the modern age, and I'm not going to participate unless I understand. But the truth is, we will never understand. And as C.S. Lewis reminds us, the command is not take and understand. The command is take and eat. And in some way, we cannot understand or explain. Grace comes to us. In the Gospel of Luke, remember the story of the risen Jesus as he journeyed with two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. They didn't know who he was. So they invite him to stay for supper, and while they were at table, he took bread and blessed it and broke it, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And this happens to us as well. The real presence of Christ in the Eucharist means that you and I can experience God's grace in the sacrament. For the Lord's Supper is more than recalling a meal Jesus had with his disciples. When we eat the bread and drink the cup in some way that we will never be able to understand or explain, the risen Christ reveals himself to us. And virtually all Christians, the children of Constantinople and Rome and Wittenberg and Canterbury and Geneva, believe in the real presence of Christ. We may not agree on how it happens, but we come to the table expecting to be fed by the presence of the Risen One. Frederick Beekner is a novelist and Presbyterian minister who had a love-hate relationship with the church, and in an interview he once said this, I feel like a traitor when I talk about the church. I always say some bad thing about it. And yet I owe the church so much. I've had wonderful moments in churches. I remember a minister in Florida giving me communion and saying, The bread of heaven, Freddy. He used my name, and I practically fell to the ground. Not only did I hear him calling me by name and using the name my nearest family calls me, but I was also hearing God himself. And I thought, of course, if the body and blood are really for us, if it's really for me, then it's for Freddy that this is done. So let us come to the table. Let us come to the table to experience the risen Christ. We may not know how this happens. We'll never be able to use words to explain it. But Jesus comes to us in a unique way. 
Justin and John Calvin agree. For Calvin tells us Christ is the only food of our soul, and therefore our Heavenly Father invites us to Christ, that refreshed by partaking of him, we may repeatedly gather strength until we have reached heavenly immortality. And I'm convinced Justin would agree with George Herbert, who once wrote, Love is that liquor sweet and most divine that my God feels as blood, but I as wine. So today, we become one with Justin and with all Christians across time and space in coming to the table, not because we understand it, but rather because we are hungry, hungry for God's love, hungry for God's love, which is present in the mystery that is the Eucharist. Let us pray. Eternal God, so often we take your presence for granted in so many places there where you are. But as we come to the table today, give us expectant hearts that we might feel your presence, know your love, and be washed by your grace. In your name we pray. Amen.